This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writer's Jumpstart Writing Competition. The competition is open to both original TV pilots and feature scripts, with a panel of 12 industry judges from top companies, including Circle of Confusion, Echo Lake Entertainment, Verve, Mosaic, Bronze Studios, and more. To learn more and check out their incredible prize packages, visit RoadmapWriters.com and choose Jumpstart from the Competitions tab. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about breaking into TV later in life and writing genre TV with Jay Holtham, ex-playwright and staff writer on Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. Welcome. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Glad to be aboard. Good to have you. Yay. All right, let's get started. So where are you from originally, and what did you do before you were a working writer? Oh, that's these are great questions. I'm a native New Yorker. I was born there, born in Brooklyn, and I lived in New York or in and around New York exclusively for the majority of my life. I basically only ever lived in New York and in L.A. I lived in New York until 2012, never lived more than an hour and a half from New York before I got on a plane and moved to Los Angeles, a city <laughs> I'd basically never been to. <laughs> We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> uh, so uh, when I was living in New York, I was mostly writing plays and working in theater, doing a lot of theater production. Uh, I was really lucky and blessed to have like theater basically almost pay the rent for about 10 years. I worked at the Ensemble Studio Theater in New York City, New York Stage and Film, and New Dramatists uh, while I was there, and then did other weird temp and office jobs to, again, try to pay the bills while I wrote plays before I realized that that was dumb. <laughs> so dumb. A lot of our listeners have asked about the chances of breaking in later in life or mm -hmm. how one goes about that. When you're not in your early 20s or sort of college kind of a thing, what has been your story? So my story... Uh, is a little weird. It's, well, like all stories about breaking into this business. It's a little weird and a little singular. But yeah, it was definitely later in life. I left New York in my late 30s, having, again, not lived anywhere else. And at that point, not having really written any film scripts, not written any TV scripts, having just a bunch of plays that were mostly unproduced in New York, my portfolio. And the first thing I did when I got here was talk to every writer I could. Uh, and try to figure out what the hell I was doing, uh, and start writing and reading scripts. I had read a lot of film scripts back in sort of the 90s. I was kind of an indie film head, so I read a lot of Tarantino and Wes Anderson scripts and had a, a pretty good sort of feel for that, and I watched a lot of TV, so that helped. I went the fellowship route, as opposed to what you know most people in their 20s do, the PA sort of network route. Also, I'm weird and awkward and people frighten me. So <laughs> pressing a lot of flesh would not have been the way to go for me. So I did, I wrote a pilot and I wrote a feature and entered them into a couple different contests and went the sort of blacklist route online and wound up with a hip pocketed by a junior agent through the Screencraft Fellowship, uh, which I did not win. I was a finalist. And then I was also a finalist for the Page Award. And that hooked me up with my first manager. And once I had those two things in place, that's when I was like, okay, I'm tired of New York. I'm exhausted. I'm getting old. I would like to actually eat dinner on a regular basis. <laughs> Maybe it's time to like take a chance and move out to LA. Uh, and so I came out here and started trying to figure it out. And then I actually won a fellowship. I was a Humanitas Fellow in 2015. 
And in a way that led to me getting work, but also in that weird, this business makes no sense way, it really had nothing to do whatsoever in any way, shape or form with me getting a job, nor did basically anything else except <laughs> getting hip pocketed by this agent. Because after the Humanitas, I signed with him a little more officially and I went out on my first staffing season and I went on, I counted, it's something like 13 meetings that first staffing season, I was exhausted. I had my patter down, thankfully. So like I knew what I was saying. And then I got to almost to a showrunner meeting on a pilot that did not go. And so it was the end of staffing season and I had no job and no job prospects and no money. Fellowship money long gone. And we were about to have our sort of come to Jesus meeting, me and my agent, when one of the people that I met with recommended me for a job on pitch. And I went in and it was late. The room was actually already up and they had had someone's deal fall through at the last minute. And so they were on the lookout for basically a writer of color. Uh, and that is what I am. And so I got the meeting and was able to get the gig. And it was a freaking miracle. Mm-hmm. And it was a great first gig to have. I got super lucky. So what was the the process like of entering that first week in the writer's room? You've never been in the writer's room Never before. set foot in the writer's room before. Uh, so how was that for you? Uh, nervous. It was real nervous making. Most of that first year was pretty much just don't lose this job. Don't screw up. Please don't screw up. I was lucky to be a moderately well prepared because both the Humanitas Fellowship and then the through the WGA, I basically got two bites at the apple at Glenn Mazzara's Staff Writer Boot Camp. Which, if you're listening and you're in the WGA and you're a staff writer, you should 100% do. Oh my God, it's so unbelievably useful. And so the Humanitas set us up with him for like a little private session. And then luckily, like the first week that I was in the room for pitch, they had the official staff writer boot camp. So I went back and basically did it again. And that was really great training. My first week in the room, one, just trying to figure out what all these people did, what all these jobs were. I had no idea what a script coordinator did, a writer's PA, really not even a writer's assistant. I still have just started to learn because you're not going to walk around not like, I'm not a rube. I don't fall off a truck from Minsk to Pinsk. I'm not going to be like, what do you do? I'm just going to work on context. Clues. I'm the showrunner. Oh, <laughs> oh God damn. I'm just going to like act like I know what's going on. Uh, so my rules at first, like the first, I think two weeks was don't say anything. Like literally say nothing at all, unless someone asks you a direct question or we are 100% not talking about the work. Like, sure, be personable, laugh at people's jokes, but say nothing. And then I upgraded to, you can say one thing a day about the show. And if that thing is stupid, too bad. That's it. You're done. And then it was after like a month, it was like, okay, you can say something until you say something stupid and then you're done. And that's basically how I sort of managed it and learned to like listen to the upper levels, let the producers have their conversation and then chip in when it seemed appropriate. It was unbelievably nerve wracking, but it was also instantly gorgeous because then I got paid and the pay is real nice and they feed you and there are snacks. And we were pitch was on the Paramount lot in a room that we realized later was the old Cheers writer's room. Wow. And it was gorgeous. 
I think Ryan Murphy or someone like that had been in there just before us and painted the walls this like great red. We had all these windows that looked out on like Lucille Ball's little backyard there area. And it was great. Uh, it was such a great gig. So what was the writing process like on your first TV show as opposed to what you've been used to as a playwright? It was a lot more collaborative. Like I was used to, as a playwright, I was in some ways kind of more than I realize, like a weird slumdog millionaire way, preparing for this job a lot longer than I thought. I was in a lot of writers groups, in particular Youngblood, EST's collective for young writers. So every Wednesday for... Seven years, eight years, I met with a group of great young writers. We workshopped each other's work. You got really used to getting notes and getting other people's ideas. Also did a lot of stunt theater. So a lot of sort of, here's a prop, make a play in a week. That taught me to be not precious about my work or my words. Definitely taught me like funniest joke wins. I would tell actors that like, listen, if you can come up with a funnier line than what I've written, say it. I'm going to take credit for it. As long as we're cool, <laughs> if that's how it's going to go, we're fine. Otherwise, say what's on the page. So it was, I learned, I was ready relatively quickly to sort of hit the ground running and not fall into sort of everyone's fear about playwrights that they're going to like hold on to their own words and not work with other people. I was like, I'm the junior dude here. Mm -hmm. And part of that also was coming into the room a little older and a little sort of aware that I was making kind of a career transition. It's a bit of a sidestep. I mean, it's all still writing and it's all still much the same work, but it's a very, very different business. And I was like, I'm here to learn. I know literally nothing about how any of this works. So how was the process of getting that first script? How did that work out for you? Unfortunately, on pitch, I did not get a script. We had a, a great room. Uh, it was sort of a big room. And it was very top-heavy and bottom-heavy for reasons that, again, I don't understand how... St I still don't understand how anyone puts together a staff. Someday I hope to learn. It's a weird sort of alchemy and calculus that I can't process from where I sit. But we had, like a bunch of upper-level writers, one producer, and then there were physically four staff writers. One was a team, so three staff writers. I joined the room late, and Pitch only had a 10-episode order. So with our creator and executive producer writing, I think he wound up writing three and a half scripts and everything else. I got the short end of the stick. So I didn't get one on that. I did get one on my next show, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. And that was, I don't know how it works in other rooms. I'm still figuring it out, but it's still like, again, it's like a, you win the lottery. It's just, you're sitting there, you're in the room, you're pitching things, you're talking about ideas and shows and stories. And then someone is like, okay, so now you're writing the script. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. I hope there are good ideas in there. Well, we'll see what happens. I've been lucky to work in really democratic rooms. So like, we don't get... We didn't get the script assignments on Cloak and Dagger until we were at the outline phase. So we broke all of the story. Same thing on Pitch. We didn't get the... No one knew who, who was writing any episode until we had broken the full episode and were ready to go to outline. And so that also allowed a lot of ownership over a lot of the story for most of the room. Uh, I've heard of other rooms where like you break your episode, you're like, you get your assignment like day one and then you're off on your own and you're breaking your episode. And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how I would have done that, especially on that first show. I would have been lost. Thank God I've worked in places where now I feel almost comfortable. 
you know, that I feel like, okay, yeah, I can break an episode of television by myself. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it's still like uh, two years ago or whatever, I would have been a nervous wreck. I just drank my way through it. <laughs> Do you feel your experience in these rooms was any different for you coming in as a slightly older writer? A little bit. I mean, definitely there's some life experience that I get to sort of bring to the table. One of the things also about being a playwright and my sort of work, just partly about me, but also very much being a playwright, is that you wind up learning a lot about a lot of things. And so I have this weird wealth of knowledge that I get, one, by being older, by being a playwright and having sort of researched these random topics of things. And so I get to be like a utility player. I find myself in the room more than anything else and more the kind of person who's like, oh, here's this like weird random fact that I know that this is useful here. And they're like, why do you know that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Just pick things up. And it also allows me to like, rooms are complicated. It's, you know, eight to 10 people in a small space talking a lot. And there's a lot of sort of interpersonal politics and soft skills that come into play that, again, being slightly, not that old, <laughs> older, I've had the experience to be able to use that. And I think I've been able to navigate some tricky situations in some rooms carefully because of it. So what was the process of getting staffed on Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, especially coming out of something like Pitch? I mean, the process, getting staffed is, for me, such a, like, nebulous and humbling and confusing process. So, coming off of Pitch, Pitch, unfortunately for us, it, we only have the 10 episodes, and it was a sort of slow, lingering death in that way. We all loved the show. It was a great room. I'm still really, really deeply proud of the show and the work we did. Even without getting an episode, I felt like I contributed and we created something that was special and that people really responded to. And it was just not enough people. And we were one of those bubble shows. So like we wrapped the room wrapped. Oh God, it was the worst. The room wrapped in November 2016. And so there was a lot of pain in the air around November 2016, and it was just a, like, is this the world that we live in now? And we kept hoping that, like, we would come back and, you know, the execs on the show seemed to really like it, and everyone seemed to be trying to find a way for it to come back. And we were hoping and hoping that we'd get maybe a few more episodes or something, and then that just didn't happen and it was one of those like dark winters of the soul where, you know, I was where I was a year before I recently switched over to a new agents and managers from the people who had gotten me on pitch for, you know, reasons. And so I was with these new reps and I didn't know, like, is this really going to work? Have I made any good decisions here at all? And then it was also winter. So like town shut down. It was the worst time for that show to wrap. It was like, right before Thanksgiving, so there was nothing. And then it picked up again in early 2017. And for me, staffing is just my reps say, hey, we're hearing that there's some staffing needs going on somewhere, so just kind of be ready. And I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I'm just ready. <laughs> Trust me, I'm ready. I'm not doing anything else, you guys. And then they're like, okay, so we're here's a meeting. When can you go to it? I'm like, whenever there's a meeting. And then I go to the meeting. And for Marvel, 
Marvel is relatively famous for being a little secretive. So it was a little bit like, here, go into this meeting at Marvel. They're not going to tell you what it's for. I'm like, okay, I just go to this meeting. And for me, a lifelong comic book fan, a Marvel kid from when I was 10, like, I'm not kidding, my eighth grade graduation quote was, make mine Marvel and doo-wop will never die. <laughs> One of those turned out to be useful later in life. And so I went for my meeting and they were all great. And I was like, okay, great. We're going to set you up with a meeting with Joe, the showrunner, because they're Marvel. It was go over there and read the script an hour before the meeting. And I read it and it was great and super exciting. And so it was all of a sudden like, here's this thing that you've always wanted. And it's staffing again for me is just weird because it's so out of my hands. It's like they tell me when to go to the meeting. I go to the meeting. I do my meeting thing. I do my little dog and pony thing. I drink the water. I tell my jokes. They hopefully land. And then I just sort of wait to hear what's gonna happen. You said you've been a lifelong comic book fan. Did you go away and kind of read all of the comics for this before you started, whether you know you knew you were staffed or not? I refreshed myself a little bit. I knew, you know, like with all of their properties, there's always going to be changes. So like being aware of it, uh, thankfully, Cloak and Dagger were comic book characters that I knew pretty well. Like I was a big fan of them back in the 80s. I remember when they premiered in the old Spider-Man comic book. So I had at least that in my like back pocket of that base of knowledge. But mostly I was like, let me see what they want to do. Uh, and I was really excited by it. It was a, an interesting take on the characters and an interesting world. And I was like, all right, I'm down with this. Um, because what the thing I find about working in genre storytelling at this day and age, anyway, there's a kind of great push and pull between the source material, between the conventions of genre storytelling and wanting to do something fresh and interesting. And we're always trying to strike that right balance of let's honor the genre, let's honor our character's origins, but we also have to tell a new story that people aren't going to feel is tired or people aren't going to get ahead of too far. Uh, and I think that we, we've done that pretty well on, on Cloak and & Dagger, and it was, it's exciting to be a part of that. And for those unfamiliar with the show, could you give us a brief overview about the story and the world and the characters? Sure, sure. Um, the characters, I can talk a bit more comfortably about the comic book characters. Uh, the show we just premiered uh, when this will air, and that's super exciting. Uh, so you can watch it. So it's about uh, two, two young people, Tyrone Johnson and Tandy Bowen, who, through no fault of their own, really, wind up with these superpowers that pull them together and give them a shared destiny, but also pushes them apart as well. And we're watching in the comic books. The comic books are really, really 1980s <laughs> and steeped in all of the things that 1980s comic books are steeped in. <laughs> so there's a little bit of racism. There's a little bit of sexism. There's a little bit of like mid eighties drug panic. Uh, in the original comic book, they are teenage runaways who are roped into a drug trial and the drug gives them these weird powers. And for him, he's got this big cloak that he can teleport in. And in the comics, he has like no body. And his body is now a portal to a dark dimension of fear. Yeah. He's the black guy. And then Tandy is the white ballerina whose mother is a model. And she gets these daggers of light that can heal addiction and somehow also feed him 
And they have this very codependent relationship where he's always like, I need your light. And she's always like, oh, you're dark and scary. Yeah. (laughs) And most famously, she has a skin tight bodysuit that has a dagger cut out of it that runs basically from her neck to her nether parts. And it's really boob window fantastic and none of that none of that is on the show Um, we took the show in a much different much more modern telling of it um and it's yeah yeah it's much more grounded yeah so i guess to that point what was the process of adapting this existing ip you know were you guys trying to reference particular storylines or just coming up with completely new ideas from that source material i mean mostly Joe, you know, Joe Pocaski, the showrunner, came in with his take on the characters and the world that they inhabited. And there are definitely elements of the comic book in, and we want to, we do want to honor that and honor, honor that history, but really just drag it kicking and screaming into a modern world and a modern storytelling context. And so that was really the process of just sort of following Joe's lead and following what makes good storytelling. And that I just find is always the the sort of truth of this work is that it's always what's the best story, what's the best idea, what's the thing that people really want to talk about right now. We brought in elements of police brutality. We definitely do still deal with a drug addiction and teenage homelessness, and we want to to honor those things, but as well as talk about you know corporate malfeasance and talk about environmentalism and the future and all of those things that aren't necessarily a part of the comics and bring those elements in as well. And just, we're telling a young adult story and trying to forge interesting ground there, sort of separate ourselves from some of the more, and I say this with love, this is not a bad word for me, some of the more comic booky superhero shows uh, but not quite as edgy as some of the sort of grim, dark comic book things out there and finding that middle ground. Well, to that, what is it like to be writing something that's perhaps more character-based versus action-based? It's interesting. I mean, I've never really worked on anything that was action-based. I've worked in character. Character-based storytelling is is great because you get to really take your time. You get to do slow burns. You're not sort of stuck with the dictates of a formula. While it must be so relieving to work on a show that has like, here's our tried and true formula and we know what works and 10 minutes in we have this turn and I'm an old Law and Order fan and like you can literally set your watch by when each turn in the story is going to happen. And there's got to be something great about that. That is a skill that I don't necessarily know that I have. Coming from theater speaking the language of character and character once and like bringing it always back to what's their emotional state, what brings them into this story, what brings them out, is where I continue to live and breathe. I've learned to be more structure savvy uh, and found that like in that weird way that you develop skills or muscles that you didn't realize you have like show up, I've turned into sort of a, a problem solver when it comes to the room. And a little bit like, oh, so we need this character who starts in this place to wind up over here. What if they do this? And it's like, oh, yeah, that solves that. Or like, what if, you know, they know how to do this? It's easier working on a new show in a way than in an existing show. Uh, because you can definitely be like, well, what if we just say that they like know how to deal cards? 
I'm like, okay, yeah. So we'll just go back and add that in. As opposed to, you know, mm, no, we said in season two that she's afraid of cards. So we can't do that. I'm like, oh, crap. Can or just retcon the entire show. Exactly. Or the other version, which is like, oh, in season one, she learned how to play cards. So we don't want to do that again. I'm like, oh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, do you think that kind of the mandate for the show was any different being on a network like Freeform as opposed to perhaps some of the other Marvel shows that are on different networks or Netflix or streaming? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, Freeform has been great, like I said. Their audience is slightly different, but at the end of the day, the, the show is the show, and I think we fit comfortably within the sort of Marvel Cinematic Universe, or even at this point, the Marvel Television Universe, within that spectrum pretty well. And it's, it is mostly the same kind of storytelling, you know. And on a writing level, do you think uh, there are any differences working at Freeform versus Fox or Broadcast Network? Not really. I mean, the thing, one of the biggest surprises uh, coming into the room for me and coming in later in life is that, like, I've watched a lot of TV and I watch a lot of TV about TV and read a lot of things. And you hear horrible, horrible things about execs. Just horrible. They're always the villains in any show about television. You know, it's always uh, JJ from Sports Night and the voice <laughs> of the network and their ratings books and all of that. And honestly, every exec that I've met wants to tell good stories, wants to make good TV. I mean, our priorities may like differ. There, there may be differences in what we think the room or the showrunner thinks is good story versus what they think is good story. But I've never met any or dealt with any execs that didn't just want to make the best show possible. And we just have to figure out how we collaborate to make that happen. I mean, sure, networks have their own aesthetics, their own sort of vibe, and the vibe of a Fox show is different than a vibe of a freeform show. But when I was on Pitch, Pitch was a sort of departure for Fox, tone-wise. And they were all super supportive of that departure and super supportive of letting that show be what it wanted to be. And that's been my experience with Freeform, too, that they've been, they've been pretty great and supportive of the show that we want to make. Did you guys have much interaction with any of the other Marvel shows or, or worlds or, you know, other people communicating for about crossovers, any things like that? I, I can't get into too much about that, but I mean, we are all part of the same universe and all part of the same world. And we, there is that communication between the shows at the end of the day, in a way, they're not specifically our toys. So there's always that conversation with Marvel about who's using what and how they're using it and making sure, not so much making sure, but being aware of using IP to its best uses. So that's always a conversation. Joe had worked on Daredevil, so he knew that world very well. There were uh, people in the room who'd come from other Marvel TV shows, uh, some of the Netflix shows. They're very good about that and keeping people sort of in the family. So there's always some awareness of it. But we're also, we're working on our show and telling our stories. And we want to be aware of what's going on. But beyond that, we're just doing our thing. Could you talk about the process that you guys use to break your stories, whether it's on a macro level or a micro level? Is it episode by episode and cards or board? Ah, uh, we were a combo room uh, between cards and boards. We would put the sort of rough beats on the boards 
and then work our way to cards. Once we like nailed the actual beats down, then we would go cards to outline. And we started basically on the macro level. You know, Joe came in and said, okay, here's where I want to go. These are our 10 episodes, and here are one or two different things that we want to see. A fun exercise that he did, again, because we were on a new show, was one of the first days he just had us all sit down and just write down cool things that you would want to see. Just doesn't matter. Divorce from story. Just here's a cool story beat. Here's a cool situation. Just write it down. And we wound up using a fair amount of those like ideas generated on the first day in various places throughout the season. So we had that. So we would work from the macro and then figure out, okay, how does this episode advance that story? Uh, what is this part of it? We had a macro. We had a, a couple of sort of big sort of like macro ideas about story structure that we wanted to hit. And then it was just dialing it down and being able to refer back and like, okay, how does this work with our macro? How does this filter back up? But in the individual scene, it's like, what makes this scene work? Definitely more of a boardroom than a card room. For you, what do you find the most challenging part of writing? Is it the the initial kind of outlining and stuff? Is it getting it down on the page in that first draft or the polish? What do you love and what do you hate? It's the polish. I I love first draft writing. I tend to be a, a ponderer. So I, my goal is like, I'll think about a story a lot and really try to break it as best I can in my head so that in first draft, I can go as quickly from thoughts and notes to outline to draft and then hopefully not have to do a lot of rewriting, except I always have to do a lot of rewriting, and that is always painful. Oh, it's painful. Not that I'm precious about the ideas, but it always feels like, well, this was the best idea that I had. I thought about it for six months, so it was obviously the best. And then I'm like, oh, crap, it was not the best. And now I have to do that work again, and that's super painful. I'm working on my own uh, a spec pilot of my own right now, and I'm about to start my seventh rebreak, and I was like, oh, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> so that's the part that, like, but then once I'm doing it, I'm going to love it. Like, once I'm in the middle of it and, like, figuring out that new break and discovering new things and discovering new parts of the story that I hadn't wanted to do before, that's always the best part. A lot of background processing going on. Yeah, it's all, I'm a big background processor. My general process is like, I'll think of an image or a title and then just literally run it in the back of my brain as a loop until I, it stumbles into a story. Are there any lessons that you've learned being a playwright that you took now that you're in a room or working in TV? Hmm. I mean, other than the stuff that I said, a lot of the soft skill stuff is stuff that I picked up from playwriting. I mean, most of it is just, it always comes back to the character. It always comes back to what does your character want? What is the story trying to achieve? What's the story you're telling with this character? For me, you can't divorce structure from character or structure from story, and you can't divorce tone from story. It all works together to build to the thing you want it to build to. And that's the the big thing that like when I'm reading other people's scripts and the other thing, I'm, I'm just thinking like, what's the story you're telling me? And how do we like keep circling back to what's the story we're telling and what's the best, clearest way to tell that story? That's the one thing that I've, I've kept. And also I had a, a playwriting teacher when I got my MFA, Romulus Linney, who always talked about ending a script with a sense of lift, a moment of lift, something that sort of raises it up. 
And I still, like, as I'm, like, gearing towards that smash to black, I'm always really thinking about what's this last image going to be? What is the last page of the script going to look like? And how is that, how is that going to elevate it? How is that really going to tell the story that I'm trying to tell? Because that's when you know. When you get to that last image, it's like, okay, I know what I've been reading. So just going back to the topic of breaking an older for a second, was it hard to make that decision to uproot and move to a whole new city when you had friends and family and you had spent your whole life in New York? It was hard. I mean, I was sort of there because I was kind of like just stuck at the end of my rope. Theater is a tough gig. Theater in New York is tough. New York is tough. And I hit a point in early, you know, the 2010s or whatever, where it was like, at this point, it's this stage in my career my two options are stop doing this altogether and do something else with my life or start self-producing plays in New York. And that's mostly just hustling people for money all the time. And I'm like, I don't definitely don't want to do that. And it was one of those decisions that like, I don't know if this has ever happened to either of you. It's one of those decisions that crept up on me. Like I can't thinking back on it. I can't recall the moment when I decided I was going to do it. I remember that, like, putting in notice at the day job I'd been, I'd been there, like, five years. Like, that was like, oh, this is actually really happening. When I actually gave notice to my boss and was like, okay, I'm I'm doing this. And then it was just sort of a, like, mad rush to get out of New York to sell or give away everything I owned. I mean, I basically burned my boats at the shore, like, freaking Magellan or whatever. <laughs> And the thing, the thing that I remember most about that whole experience was, you know, I've basically never been here. I did a, a brief uh, observership at Cornerstone Theater downtown. I don't drive. I got my driver's license in high school. It expired in 2001. I did not renew it. I thought I was going to die in New York. I got here for that, that observership and never left downtown L.A., like, I didn't do anything touristy. I just walked from my hotel to the theater every day for five days, saw nothing of Los Angeles. And then here I was in 2012 being like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I flew out here. I had arranged for a sublet in Los Feliz. But I thought I was going to have an emotional breakdown that first night. I seriously considered getting like a hotel room away from this sublet because it was like a two-bedroom sublet. The guy was going to be there. I'm like, no, I'm going to need to like cry and freak out and I'm just going to lose my crap. I got off the plane. A buddy of mine from New York happened to be here. He drove me from LAX to Los Feliz, which I now realize was an (laughs) unbelievably huge favor. Oh my God. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. And I left the place and walked from Hollywood and Western to the In-N-Out Burger on Sunset and Highland. And by the end of that walk, I was 100% in love with LA. I walked, I was like, this was an option the whole time. Nobody told me. And so that adjustment, learning to live here and figuring LA out is complicated and took some time. But by that, by the end of that walk, I was like, I'm, I'm going to stay here. That's the power of in and out. It is. It <laughs> is, man. Oh, it was so good. So is there anything that you wish you would have done differently or regret by the decision? I don't regret anything. I do not. I, I'm not a person who likes to think about regret. Like I make decisions and like I made them with the best information I had at the time. I do wish I'd come earlier just so I could have enjoyed LA when it was cheaper um, <laughs> and probably had slightly better tacos. 
And there isn't much else that I would have done differently. I would have saved more earlier. I would have written more, a lot more. I wrote like barely just enough in order for me to get a job. I'm still working on like pumping up my output to get further jobs and to move further along. But other than that, like I sort of tripped backward and fell into clover, like literally dream job territory through happenstance and such little work of my own that like it's it's hard for me to look back and go like, oh, my God, I totally screwed up. Like, <laughs> like I totally screwed up and somehow it all worked out, you guys. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Don't let's, let's not look at that any further. <laughs> What was your biggest fear about making that move when you were back in New York? And what was the reality of that once you got here? I mean, my biggest fear was that it wouldn't work out. And there were two distinct periods where I was like, I don't know if this is actually going to work out. And I have no plan B. Like, I did not want to go back to New York. I don't have any other marketable skills. I did not know what I was going to do. And that, like, hitting those points was what I was afraid of. And then I hit it twice. So I don't know, man. And right at the right time, both of those times, gigs came in to to pull me out of it, you know? Do you have any advice for people listening to us right here, wanting to pursue writing later in life or anything that you wish you would have known back then? I mean, one, do it. If you're thinking about it, do it. Take the shot, take your chance, start writing, move to LA, move somewhere else, start sending things out. Uh, the biggest thing that I feel like worked for me and that when I look at people who are in my age range trying to do this, particularly for older people, it's kind of, it's not exactly pick your lane, but pick your strategy. Pick the thing, the way of working your way into this business that's going to work for you and how you already live your life and for your skill set, and then kind of stick with it. The people that I've noticed who have struggled are very talented. Some of them are, are honestly more talented than I am. But when they hit those setbacks, they recalibrate and say, okay, well, I, I'm going to try something completely different or I'm going to try a different tactic. And one of the things that worked for me is honestly just being stubborn and saying, this is the thing I'm doing. I don't have skills to do anything else. And that doggedness has worked out for me. And I would say to anyone like that, like, figure out your strategy. It's like, I mean, here comes the, the long metaphor for writing that everyone hates, but here, here it comes anyway. Everyone's got one in their back pocket. It's like climbing Mount Everest. You know, if you're 35 years old and you think, okay, I want to climb Mount Everest, the first thing you do isn't go and climb Mount Everest. You figure out like, okay, how am I going to do that? You train on lower mountains, you get the material, you read people, and you figure out what's the best way to do that, and you build your way to it. And it's not like midway through that, you're just going to say like, you know what, I'm ready for that now. You're not, you know? And I feel like that's the thing. Like, think of it like climbing a mountain, and you've got to build the skills to be able to do that. Are there any favorite comics or characters or worlds that you would want to turn into a TV show if you could? Oh, man. I just got scooped on this is one of those like super painful ones where for years, for at least literally, I'm not even kidding for at least three years. Uh, and back when I was in the fellowship, uh, sort of track, 
was one of the specs that I was totally going to work on and was like, it's in my back pocket to work on an Arrow episode where they introduced the Doom Patrol. And I was like, yes, if I get that, if I get that meeting at DC TV, that's the thing where I'm like, they're never going to make a Doom Patrol show. <laughs> and then they just announced that they're making a Doom Patrol show. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm super excited for it. But crap. You can always pull up that spec and be like, hey, hey guys. guys, hey, <laughs> guys, you want to read a thing that you can't use and then can't hire me for? That'd be great. Thanks. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, that was one of the ones. There are a few others. There are a few other sort of ones that I still keep noodling about. A couple of sort of Marvel ones that are in the back of, again, in my back pocket somewhere for just that right meeting. I mean, there's so many worlds. There's so many things. I've just been thinking about it now. I'm a huge fan of The Expanse. Really huge fan. Hopefully by the time this airs, someone will have saved it. Please. Hashtag save The Expanse. Please save The Expanse. We need it. Uh, Because we need those kind of big stories. And we need those stories that are talking about, like... And I love The Expanse, and I don't think we actually have hit it. We haven't hit that, like, Battlestar Galactica kind of show that is really talking about this current moment and really processing it. Handmaid's Tale comes close but obviously has a super specific focus. And I feel like that's the things that I'm trying to think about are in that realm uh, and in that space of like, what's, what is the sci-fi version of Trump's America? Ugh. Cringe. Yeah. On that. Well, <laughs> what is next for you uh, outside of a cloak and dagger? Um, I'm still not sure. You know, uh, cloak and dagger airs, uh, is, has just started airing and is premiering and I'm hoping to great success. So, Pulling for a second season of that, uh, and in the sort of modern world of being a TV writer, uh, hoping for something to, to land in between. I haven't lined up that next gig yet. Do you have any specific kind of uh, big goals for your career? Would you like to get into the feature side of things? Do you want to run your own show? Like what, what speaks to you? What's the next mountain you want to climb? I'm still figuring that out. I'd like to build up my features. I have a feature idea that I've been noodling around about that I want to like take to the next level. It's been a really interesting process being in rooms and seeing how they work. And, you know, you go into this thinking, yeah, I want to create my own show. And then you watch showrunners, and (laughs) that's a lot of work. But it's also a lot of work that is out of the room. And so on a sort of daily basis, and don't tell my reps this, (laughs) I go back and forth between, like, wanting to create my own show because you want to have that voice. You want to have that thing at the end of the day that this is the thing I created and the story I wanted to tell, and no one else really gets to tell me how to tell it, and have that vision put out there uh, versus getting to write all day, getting to be in the room. And like number twos have a lot of, a lot of influence in how the stories get told and how the, stor- the story comes together. And I go back and forth between whether or not I want to try to show run or whether I want to just build to being a, a good number two uh, and just keep working. What's your experience been uh, in this industry as a writer of color? And, and how's that, kind of, especially in this era? <laughs> it's a sort of double-edged sword in its way. There is the push for diversity, which is great. Um, there are more diverse stories. There are more diverse characters to write for. It is super exciting to be on Cloak and & Dagger. And our room was actually 50% white, 50% black, 50% male, and 50% female. And we were creating the Marvel's first young black superhero uh, for the MCU. So getting that opportunity and getting to have those conversations was unbelievably great uh, and super exciting. 
But then, of course, the flip side is the the weird essentialism of it, of that feeling of like, I'm here to be the black guy. And I'm, as you might be able to tell, not particularly the most black guy, black guy <laughs> in the world. And so there's a, a a navigation around that and a navigation of being like, I want to I want to tell great stories. Uh, I want to tell interesting stories and I can tell stories of all sorts of people. But I am very much a black writer, and I want to write about the variety of black experience. While this current era has a lot of drawbacks for that, like a lot, there's there, there's a lot. Uh, one of the great things that has come out basically through Twitter is sort of the rise of black nerd culture. And that opens up so many more doors and so many more audiences that, you know, particularly when I was younger didn't we didn't have those kind of outlets black nerds obviously existed i was one and i know there were a lot of us but it was hard to connect and it was hard to find a place in the mainstream so you know living in a world where black panther makes a billion dollars where cloak and dagger are on the air is really exciting before we go we have a couple more questions for you sure first of all what shows are you watching on tv right now uh the expanse is probably my number one, uh, Legion. Uh, just today, I watched the season finale of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is a heart-wrencher. So good. That show is is really, really great. The Good Place. The Good Place is so good. It's so it. good. I have a weird... I may actually start this, so it may have already started. I don't know where you'll see it. Maybe if we're Facebook friends, I'll do a thing. I had this weird idea of re-watching The Good Place and Rick and Morty, from the beginning, and then like writing about this, you know, the nihilism of Rick and Morty contrasted against the optimism of the good place, and just right. trying to see like what is that, what would that feel like? Um, so those, yeah, Rick and Morty. God, I love Rick and Morty. <laughs> Seventy more episodes. It's going to be on forever. I thought that was a joke when I first saw it, and I'm like, oh, it's real. Yeah, no, it's real. Seventy episodes. I mean, yeah, but the world needs it. Mm-hmm. The world needs it. Any last advice you have for aspiring writers or people wanting to kind of make it in the business? Just write. I mean, that was when uh, the Humanitas Fellowship that I mentioned earlier, when they brought us together with Glenn Mazzara, it was like a small group, just Humanitas Fellows and finalists for that year. Uh, we met when he was working on uh, Damien, and he had his, because he's a great dude this way, he let his assistants, like the script coordinator, the writer's assistant, the writer's PA, sit in as well uh, to hear him talk. And towards the end of it, he asked us all to go around and say how many samples we had. And most of us, you know, the the people getting the Humanitas Fellowship are people like me, generally people making their way into the industry, a lot of them on the older side and shifting over from other parts of the industry or other careers. So, you know, we were all like three, five. Both of his assistants had more than 10. They had so many samples. He's like, that's your competition are people who are 25, 26-year-old and are just writing like crazy because they're they're hungry and they want to get in. So yeah, just write. Write as much as you can and just keep writing. You know, keep writing. 
And lastly, do you have any resources, be it apps, websites, books, podcasts, whatever it is for our listeners? Uh, honestly, the biggest resource that I use right now is Twitter. Uh, TV and screenwriting Twitter is great. You get some really great voices, both people who are new in the industry and people who are established. If you scroll back into it, Amy Berg had a, has had two really great Twitter threads about staffing season and about being a staff writer. That's That's where to go. Just start like scrolling through Twitter. We'll link those in the show notes, by the way. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our episode. But before we go, just a reminder that our paper tease competition is still open for submissions. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air and win prizes from our sponsors. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 92. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And thanks very much to Jay for joining us. My pleasure. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all of those reviews will help more people notice the show and we'll have more cool people like you listening uh, and our sponsor roadmap writers has also launched their inaugural jumpstart writing competition open to both tv pilots and feature scripts the competition presents 12 esteemed industry judges from top companies including circle of confusion echo lake entertainment verve mosaic and more to learn more and view their incredible prize packages visit roadmapwriters.com and choose jumpstart from the competitions tab and as always i'm on twitter at tv calling i'm at underscore nj watson are you on twitter yep uh, at j holtham and if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be doing an episode all about tips and tricks to help your TV writing. Whether you're stuck on a scene or trying to make your characters more interesting, we'll talk about fixes for common problems. See you next week.